Do you believe in the devil, Father? I guess I have to. What's he look like? Look like? Yeah, the devil. What the hell does he look like? He looks like you and me, I imagine. So he could get his claws in us without our ever knowing. Make us do things that we normally would never do. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Needful Things. New kind of store. You won't believe your eyes. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. Well, I reckon he needed some killing. Hosted by Arnie. The guy is evil. Don't go near him. Stuart. You are disgusting. I like that in a person. And Jacob. He's not a human being. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. It's too hot in him, just say the word. I'm afraid I have a tendency to turn up the heat. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, little puppy. You ready now? Let's run a good race. Ready, set, go! Today, we're discussing Needful Things, starring Ed Harris, Max von Sydow, Bonnie Bedelia, J.T. Walsh, and Amanda Plummer as Nettie, directed by Fraser C. Heston. That's son of Omega Man to you and me. This is the now-playing co-host who can't work miracles. He's just one lonely podcaster, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who has been given a citation for being king shit, Jacob. (laughs) Who gave that to you? It wasn't me, I swear. (laughs) Don't kill my dog. (laughs) Oh, needful things. We are back in the realm of Stephen King in his fictional hometown. I mean, so many stories set in Castle Rock. Needful things, supposed to be the last. I'm going to call it right there. Like... I was like, all right, Castle Rock, where the Pet Cemetery was, where Carrie was, Shawshank Prison, the Overlook Hotel. None of that happened there. No, I mean, Overlook was Colorado. None of the iconic King stories happened in Castle Rock. I have no idea why it's a big deal. Cujo went rabid there. Christopher Walken found a serial killer there. Pennywise wasn't from there, was he? No, he did not. That was Derry. Yep. And Timothy Hutton wrote a book there in the dark half, and that was it. Whoop-dee-doo. I mean, I think you've hit on a couple of big ones. Plus, it was referenced in a lot of other stuff. You know, Tim Robbins lived in Castle Rock before he was incarcerated at Shawshank. Shawshank is near Castle Rock. Castle Rock is in early parts of the recut The Stand. Gerald's Game has some stuff in Castle Rock. And what King said at the time of writing the book is he'd become too familiar with Castle Rock. He knew the people in it. I mean, these were recurring characters. It was a shared fictional universe, like the Marvel Universe, only you didn't have stars. You had, like, cops and minor characters crossover. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland showed up in the novel for Needful Things and... It's the Marvel Universe if you care about janitors and, like, store (laughs) clerks and things. It doesn't have any of the superheroes in it. Are you telling me, like, Nettie was in the background of some other novel or something? Nettie wasn't, but the lead here, Ed Harris, his sheriff, was played by Michael Rooker in The Dark Half. 
I thought Pangborn sounded familiar. Yeah. I mean, that was a major character in a couple of books. I mean, you say major character in minor books. I just want to emphasize, if you thought this was like what J.J. Abrams did with Castle Rock, tried to say this is the compendium of where everything Stephen King is hatched, and it all happens here, what does it mean that he's saying goodbye to Castle Rock? I took it to mean, before I picked up this big, enormous book... It is big. (laughs) ...that Stephen King was saying goodbye yet again to horror fiction. By closing the cover on Castle Rock, he was saying this is the last time, kind of like what he did with It. This is my last time looking at small-town Maine and looking at the darkness that I see in those communities. Absolutely not. That is not what he said. I remember this book coming out. It came out in 1991, and I graduated high school in 1992. As a graduation gift, somebody gave me a $100 gift card to Walden Books. Now, I'd never had $100 to spend in a bookstore before in my life. I went in there. I was in, I guess, a king phase. You know, Lawnmower Man had just come out. So I bought a Stephen King encyclopedia. I bought Needful Things on audiobook read by Stephen King on, I think it was something crazy, like 32 cassette tapes. (laughs) You didn't even get the CDs. Audiobooks were kind of new then. Like that was sort of like a thing like, ooh, you're not going to you're not going to read it on the page. Yeah. So you listened to Needful Things. Read by King. And I always feel if it's read by the author, you get a little bit more. You get more of what they intended. And so I listened to this just driving through town, you know, to and from my job, to and from movies. I'd listen to Needful Things five, ten minutes at a time. I'd find myself sitting in my car to listen for extra time. I was absorbed completely in this. And I remember reading interviews at the time, and King said what happened was Castle Rock was safe to him. He kept going there as a crutch. He said that he could close his eyes and just tell you directions on how to get from the police office to the mail office. He knew the streets, he knew the people, and he was just becoming too comfortable there. And so he decided to have one last story that would just blow everything up. Turned out it wasn't the last story. Well, (laughs) surprise. Just like it wasn't his last horror novel. But did he blow it up in the book and had a retcon this, or or he chickened out before he got to the end writing it? It, you know, it was a bit more destructive than we're going to discuss, but it wasn't annihilated off the map like Chamberlain was in Carrie, and we never found out that it was left a ghost town like Salem's Lot. We are told epistolary that it is a completely empty city devoid of any life. So he didn't go that far with it. And in fact, just a couple years later, he released a compilation called Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And we're going to be talking about it. There's some movies from that short story compilation. But he had a short story he wrote in the 70s called It Grows on You that he rewrote To be like, he called it an epilogue to Needful Things by putting it in Castle Rock and telling some of Castle Rock's early history in the 18 and 1900s. But then he still has written two more short stories about it. And then he's partnered with Richard Schismar, who runs Cemetery Dance Publications, who's done a lot of Stephen King special editions. I've talked about them before. And Stephen King and Richard Chismar have co-written two books in the past three years taking place in Castle Rock. (laughs) So 
I did not like this book. I would I would rank it among his very worst. It was dull. It was really long and really dull. And it was kind of like Salem's Lot without vampires or, yeah, Dairy without the clown. Like, you took away all the monster stuff and it just becomes this story about small town bickering. Let me counter that and say this is one of my top Stephen King books. I listened to the audiobook in 1992. Then I decided I wanted to have the experience of reading the book, read it in the aughts, did the audiobook again in the teens, and then reread the physical page again for this review. And each time it keeps getting better for me. I love this book more than Salem's Lot. I didn't care for the way Salem's Lot dealt with the town and all the different townspeople. Salem's Lot is King's best book, period. No, indeed not, sir. There's The Shining, there's The Stand. The Shining is way overrated. The Shining is good because of Kubrick. No, The Shining was great on the page before Kubrick ever touched it and made his own movie separate from that book. Well, I'll give you this much. Dr. Sleep is his very worst book. I'm not going to say <laughs> this is the absolute worst. The, the, the buck-toothed gypsies, that bootleg psychic kids in a can, that was total <laughs> shit. But this was like they took away what was distinctive about King and said, now you get to write it without those elements. And so I just couldn't understand why he would want to write with one arm tied behind his back. It just felt like he was crippling himself by trying to tell this story without going horror. You keep talking about this being very long, and I didn't read this book. I know it's a King book when I hear the word needful things. 700 pages. 700 pages, because at two hours, I'm like, well, this is a Twilight Zone episode. I'm pretty sure I've seen a Twilight episode with this kind of plot. 700, so there's like 30 times the town folks in that book, I'm guessing. There's a lot more townsfolk. There's a lot more depth to the story. There's a lot more building up of the rivalries. I mean, it is basically a redo of Salem's Lot. Now, I've always liked the devil more than Dracula. So I actually like Satan Comes to Small Town, Maine as a premise. And I just felt like it was done very fun but still yes a horror novel it has so many king tropes i mean it's got the religious people fighting it's got the rich person in town having some kind of personal crisis and ending up going insane and murdering people i mean we had that in under the dome it's got crazy killer spiders. Yeah, it's got killer spiders like it. Yeah, I, I mean, all it was missing was the green lipstick, and it could have been a sequel to Tommyknockers. I really feel like it dialed down the fun while never progressing on the human elements. Like, by imagining the same thing that King has done without vampires, without space aliens, it puts the pressure on him to dig deeper into character motivation and the behaviors and the reasons why small-town-mindedness might lead to murder. You have to be really good to do that. You got to be a Truman Capote. You got to be a real writer. That's what he's done by backing himself into this corner. And I think that whatever I think about this movie, the book does it a thousand times better because this movie, there are two cuts and I watched them both. But the one I saw in theaters way back when, yes, I saw Needful Things in theaters in 93 because I liked that book so much, was a two hour cut. And how can you take 700 pages of personal drama and cram that into a two-hour movie? I don't know how this is two hours. I, I say cut more. There was a cut 
that has only been released on German DVD. Of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the Germans. And thankfully, you got to watch that one. I only saw the theatrical two-hour cut. How long is the German cut? It was made for Ted Turner. They colorize it or something? <laughs> <laughs> Turner wanted to make Needful Things a two-night event for its premiere. And so, as it aired on TNT and TBS, Needful Things was a four-hour presentation. Cut out commercials, you've got three hours of movie. Extra hour. Yeah, I can see where the extra hour would be. I mean, there are definitely... What it seems like is they, they took out characters and that there are people running around at the climax of this movie in the theatrical cut that must have a story in this longer cut. A couple of them. There's still a couple people at the end who just pop up. There are a couple people who got cut completely. There are huge chunks of the movie taken out. I did listen to Fraser Heston's commentary recorded not all that long ago. And he said the three-hour cut is not his director's cut. It was the cut that Turner requested. The two-hour cut is not his director's cut because that was the cap that Columbia and Castle Rock Entertainment... Of course it was put out by Castle Rock Entertainment, right? Yeah, I mean, Rob Reiner, I guess he felt like he owed King something after Stand By Me and Misery did so well for him. Owed something or saw profit in making movies with King's name. So he said if he were to actually get a director's cut of this, it would be probably about halfway in between, two and a half hours. And, you know, I watched both cuts. I will talk about them as we go through it. I'll talk about some of the major additions. But, yeah, neither one is really Frazier's vision. And it's worth pointing out, particularly if you see it through the lens of being a horror movie, most studios are not willing to release something in the early 90s over two hours. Most movies, frankly, unless you were an epic trying to win Oscars, you didn't get three hours. You didn't get two and a half hours in theaters. And so... It was always going to be truncated. There was nothing that this director could do to honor the full text of those 700 pages. My question to you is, with King already doing so well on ABC, why wasn't this fashioned into one of those TV miniseries? Reiner had the right. Snatched up before the book is published. Mm -hmm. And like you said, Reiner did well with Misery. Reiner did well with Stand By Me. I mean... King had some shit around this time. This is Lawnmower Man time. This is Graveyard Shift time. But there were King standouts as well. And so I think under the auspice of Castle Rock, you'd expect this to be good. And then they'd bring in Fraser Clark Heston to direct. Yeah, this is, I was serious when I said son of a Mega Man. Charlton Heston had a son who, who knew, directed movies. I didn't, I don't think I've ever seen any of them. Did he ever direct another one? Some that I didn't see. A lot of TV movies. Apparently he did a TV movie of Treasure Island, which is presumably why some character is running around wanting a first edition copy of Treasure Island. In the commentary, he was like, this was my first feature directing gig. Why do you give him this? Well, who would want it? <laughs> it just seems strange. But he had mostly been second unit, and his biggest gig to date had been second unit on City Slickers. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have prestige director appeal. I mean, it's telling that Rob Reiner, head of Castle Rock Entertainment, said, yes, we'll make it, but no, I'm going to go make a few good men. You know, like he was working on other things and did not feel like he personally had a take on this material. Again, I ask, it's so long and so detailed with characters. My only presumption is Tommy Knockers came out 
it was actually the same summer at the beginning of summer it had hit the airwaves on television maybe they felt like they were too similar like this was the theatrical take to Tommy Knocker's ABC miniseries well king has a lot of stories like this i mean this isn't all that different from under the dome isn't all that different from salem's lot is some degrees different than carry but still all about a town's destruction and falling i feel king is in his comfort zone with this telling this movie didn't do well though i'm not sure what the budget was for it uh, 15 million gross they buried it i mean it came out summer 1993 which is jurassic park fugitive the firm free willy <laughs> did free willy do better than this oh way better like this came out at the very last week of summer and so i think they were it came out against like mel gibson's man without a face and son of pink panther with robert benini i mean it it didn't even get number one like fugitive in its fifth week was still beating this so i don't think anyone cared i honestly my guess is once the studio rob reiner sat down and saw this in the screening room he was like eh. i was there opening weekend <laughs> I worked two jobs in August 1993. By day, I was janitor at a fitness center. By night, I was delivering pizzas. And I took a made sure I had an afternoon free of both jobs to see Needful Things. Well, yeah, I mean, you called Lawnmower Man shit, but you loved it. And that had just come <laughs> out. And like, yeah, you were, I remember you like at the height of King, really, around this time. Like you were in that book club. And I'm not shocked at all that you would be one of the few to go out there and see it opening weekend. But what was your reaction then? It was middling. And I've seen this movie probably counting just background. It was on television and I'd turn it on. I've probably seen this movie 10 times. Mm, wow. 10 times. Okay. I saw it in theaters and I went walked out going, well, it wasn't the book. That's what I remember. I don't remember hating it. I certainly didn't love it. And then it came out on video, and I watched it when it was new on video, just because it was King, and I wanted to kind of relive it. And I watched Stephen King movies all the time in the 90s, you know? I can't count how often I watched Christine and Carrie and some of those classics, but yeah, I was checking out Graveyard Shift. I never rewatched Graveyard Shift. I rewatched Needful Things from time to time. I'll preview my thoughts. I love Max von Sydow in this movie, and I love its score, and so that was enough to carry it as a background movie. As I came back to it just kind of having a neutral feeling like i'm i'm curious i haven't seen it now in probably 15 years i was curious coming back putting on the now playing glasses being really critical of it what will i think i wasn't sure because i've always just been kind of meh on it so far mm -hmm. well you saw it 10 times you get to give the plot and we'll figure out if how meh it really is castle rock maine has had its share of problems a raincoat-wearing serial killer, a rabid St. Bernard, an author stalked by his evil pseudonym, and in the 50s, a kid was hit by a train. But all that horror couldn't prepare the northeastern hamlet for Leland Gaunt, played by Max von Sydow. Gaunt has moved to Castle Rock to open his antique store, named Needful Things. In the store, Gaunt has the perfect thing for whoever stops by. For 11-year-old Brian, Gaunt has an autographed Mickey Mantle baseball card. For schoolteacher Frank Jewett, Gaunt has a first edition copy of Treasure Island. For simple dog lover Nettie Cobb, played by Amanda Plummer, Gaunt has a ceramic figurine exactly like the one broken by her abusive ex-husband. For local drunk Hugh Priest, Gaunt has a letterman's jacket, just like Priest wore in his heyday in the 50s. 
Then there's local town selectsman Dan Buster Keaton, played by J.T. Walsh. Keaton has embezzled $20,000 in funds from the town and used it to bet on horse races. For this desperate man, Gaunt has an old toy racetrack that can always predict the winner of any race. All these special and magical items are outside the price range of Castle Rock's modest residence, but Gaunt always seems to make a deal. The buyer pays what they can, and then they owe Gaunt a favor. And these favors are always nefarious. For example, he has Brian throw turkey shit on the sheets of Nettie's nemesis, Wilma. Wilma, of course, blames Nettie, and then Gaunt has Priest kill Nettie's dog. Nettie, of course, blames Wilma, so the two women go after each other with knives and cleavers, hacking until both are dead. Basically, all of Gaunt's favors have Person A do something that increases tensions between Person B and Person C, who blame each other, not ever thinking Person A would have done it. And this grows tension in the town until people are killing each other, fighting each other, and more. But it does seem Gaunt missed one resident, Sheriff Alan Pangborn, played by Ed Harris. Pangborn buys nothing from the store, and when the town starts to seemingly go nuts with vandalism, assault, and murder, Pangborn starts to unravel the secrets. Before Brian, full of guilt, attempts suicide, Brian tells Pangborn Gaunt is the cause of all these troubles. Pangborn starts to put the heat on Gaunt, so Gaunt closes his store. To fight back against the sheriff, Gaunt becomes friendly with Pangborn's fiance, local cafe owner Polly, played by Bonnie Bedelia. Polly has bad arthritis and is becoming addicted to opioid painkillers. Gaunt has a magical necklace that will take away all of Polly's pain. The price Polly must pay is to kiss Gaunt, which seemingly turns into a passionate night of Polly cheating on Alan. Gaunt also frames Alan for being in cahoots with Buster Keaton in stealing from the town fund, causing Polly to call off the engagement. As for Keaton, he's been growing more and more paranoid, murdered his wife for suspected adultery, and then is tasked by Gaunt to hide bombs throughout the town. As the bombs go off, all of Castle Rock's citizens come into the street fighting each other full of bloodlust. Alan fires his gun in the air to get everyone's attention, and then gives a long speech, pointing out Gaunt is the one who set everyone against each other. Seeing this, Keaton takes some of the bombs and goes suicide bomber, blowing himself up and taking Gaunt and needful things with him. But Gaunt walks out of the flames unharmed. It's strongly implied Gaunt is Satan. Defeated, he leaves town, but he's sure to play this game again in another town. And Polly apologizes to Alan, and they again become engaged as credits roll. And as they start, 10 minutes cut from this opening. There was a completely different opening to this movie than what you see. Well, it's not much of an opening in the theatrical cut. We get some ominish chanting, and we understand that this ominous car is bringing Leland Gaunt to town, from Akron, Ohio, to Castle Rock. And what else do you need to know? What, what, what do we miss? A big car chase. I couldn't believe they cut out action. A car chase? With the devil? Yes. <laughs> After we get this music, which I love, you say Omen, it's definitely got hints of that. I also was thinking Bram Stoker's Dracula that Coppola had done a couple years before this kind of had some hints of that kind of score in the melody. But Sheriff Pangborn, Ed Harris, is trying to jumpstart the car of his deputy, and Gaunt's Mercedes speeds past, hits one of the cars, rips the door off, and there's a major high-speed chase between... Pangborn and this unseen driver in the black Mercedes, 
until eventually the black Mercedes gets away and then Gaunt drives into town in some kind of beater Honda something or other. And then at the end of the movie, when you see the Mercedes, you're supposed to go, ah, it was him. Oh, wow. See, the only reason I could think that that would be a good beginning to this movie was that I feel like the cut we have really underserves Ed Harris. I like Ed Harris. He's usually good in everything. He's pretty good here, but you may forget that he's supposed to be the star. Like, he shows up a little bit late, and I don't feel like he's ever in the mix because he's the altruistic, he's the one townsperson that can't be sold a needful thing. He's going to spend a lot of this movie off screen. Yes, I have so many questions about Ed Harris's character because none of the motivations are explained. Why isn't he tempted by the devil? Like, what is his deal? We're, we're told a little bit about his backstory, but he doesn't seem to be in this film that much. No, there was a lot more in the extended cut. This is bits here and there. Like, his secretary at the sheriff's office kept coming on to him and he kept having to push her away because he's being loyal to Polly. And there was a lot more of him negotiating with deputies. And what about his dead wife storyline from the book? Is that not there at all? Not here at all. Mm. I mean, obviously, you need to abridge 700 pages, even down to three hours. I feel like you'd want to give him some drama, not just flirting with the secretary. Yeah, the person who got screwed the most is, you know, Lachlan Monroe, who is at least getting platinum headphones at this point. We talked about him in Freddy vs. Jason. He was in The Predator. He's in this. Uh, he's primarily known, I think, for white chicks. But he was one of the deputies. He barely has a line in the theatrical cut. He gets quite a bit of screen time in the extended cut. Yeah, he's in that love triangle with the special ed teacher and the PE teacher in the book. Is that done in the extended cut? No. Wow. No PE teachers. None of that was put in. Again, you got to cut some things. And what was mostly cut out of the book were subplots. What's weird is that teacher who comes in wanting Robert Louis, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, never heard that pronunciation form before, but it makes sense. And you don't have any other teachers. You don't have any other students. He feels really out of place with wanting that book. But you're absolutely right. You could. I mean, it was the age of Robert Altman coming back in the early 90s. This was the same year as Shortcuts. It became a thing to have 40 people at a movie and juggling them. There are people that have talent doing that. Pulp Fiction. We're even going to have a Pulp Fiction cast member in this. Pulp Fiction was one year later, yep. Amanda Plummer had a bad year before a good year. We could have gotten it all in. With clever rethinking of King's structure, you could have played with time and jumped around and and juggled the different characters and told their moral quandaries, if that were something that you would want to do. This is uh, being adapted by the screenwriter of Big Trouble in Little China, so... <laughs> And here's the thing, though, is when you deal with an Altman project, I feel like you're able to tell more stories in that time because they draw parallels off of each other. They follow thematically. You're thinking about one character when you're seeing another, like Crash. Stephen King, when he does his town stories like this... I mentioned in Tommyknockers, he just took a short story he had written for a magazine, rewrote a couple of lines, and put it in Tommyknockers. He likes to basically make each of his characters their own novellas, and so you kind of lose that thematic cohesion that you would have if you were dealing with an Altman or a Soderbergh. I do think that they draw a parallel with 
Pangborn and the first, you know, purchase at Needful Things. When we get this theatrical cut going, we're going to see that the sheriff is proposing to his sweetheart, the head of the, the town diner. And I think that, that transaction is done in parallel to the first purchase being done by little Brian and his baseball card. So Brian, he goes in, he wants this Mickey Mantle baseball card, like him and his dad had collected the whole set. That was the only one they were missing. Gaunt, of course, has it. It's it's personalized to him, autographed. Brian touches it. He sees the game and and then you know they're going to make this whole whole deal so i guess he wanted this card because it was a good memory with his dad as we're getting to the other characters like what is the bad thing about wanting these things is it nostalgia is bad that's what it seems sometimes like just greed like it seems like it's all over the place and then their visions are always different too it's like we see a baseball game we see Nettie's domestic abuse in the past we see a, a foretelling of polly hooking up with gaunt like is the book this messy like i what's the method here I, I will say this much, that yes, if I were writing a story in which what people want is put in contrast to their neighborliness, it would be very important, the items that they pick and the people that they turn on. First of all, some of this is done for the movie, to be visual. The flashbacks. The cheesy purple lighting. <laughs> yeah, the little electric shocks. They shouldn't have done that. That was just really poor. Yeah, this none of this needs to be in a book. In a book, you can have a person remember something, have a triggered memory by an item. But those memories, do they mean something? Because you could have cut those all out of this movie. I, I wouldn't have missed anything. It would have been less confusing. It actually would have helped. Because they're not consistent in their visions. Like, it, it's all over the place. The consistency is about obsession. Because each of the things they get becomes their most important thing in their life. The rest of their life will fall apart around them as they focus on this one thing. I mean, you could take this as a critique on materialism very easily. That's exactly it. If this is supposed to be attack on the 80s, you know, coming out of that, and the fact that people put greed and materialism over family values... It's not really articulated by the stories within. Like, that is not something that comes through. I think you were getting at, Jacob, was was the fact that this kid was connected to this card because of his father important? No, absolutely not. The father was never a character. Okay, and that's what's confusing for me is I watch this movie. I'm like, oh, this could be a fun. And I watched the trailer before I watched it, and they kind of make it look like a dark comedy, you know, with, with the music the building up, the classical music they use and all that. And yeah, that's the route they should have gone. This this could have been satiric or, or parroting society some way. It didn't have to just be about materialism, but whatever this is, a longing for the past as, as you see a letterman's jacket or something from your high school days. I don't know what we get here, and maybe it's in that 700 pages but what i get in two hours on the screen is again it's a twilight zone episode but there, there's nothing deep to it there's nothing deep in this book unless arnie you want to disagree i would say that all the conflicts it feels like people want these items because they're addicted to them in the same way king was to cocaine yeah that's what i'm kind of saying when i say that they become obsessed with the item i hadn't thought about the addiction parallel per se but it makes sense with this being his first fully sober book as well you know, as a collector, I kind of just went with these characters a little <laughs> bit more. I kind of understood their 
thinking. I understood buying something because it brought you joy when you were younger, but it's all very individualistic. Like I said, I feel like King is lacking in overall theme here. Then here's my follow-up. Pengborn, getting back to our protagonist, like all we're really told about his background, he had to move to this small town because he hit someone a little too hard when, when he was a cop somewhere else. And Is that in the longer cut explained? Uh, no, not not much. More. I, there might be a line or two more, but it's uh, he was a cop in Pittsburgh. He got frustrated with the crime. He punched someone too hard and killed them. And so why try a cop for murder? Just let him go be a cop in a small town. <laughs> yeah. So seeking redemption from that, like, isn't that what he should be tempted with? I don't understand why Pangborn is never tempted in this film. He is at the very end. He's tempted to go back to violence. He's tempted to kill again due to violence around him. And he shoots up in the air yelling, no, it's all very dramatic. Like, why is he able to stand up to the forces of Satan when everyone else succumbs? He, there's got to be something about him. All I'm told is he hit someone too hard in Pittsburgh. The thing is, we need a hero. And so he's a hero precisely for that reason. He's the only one that sees Gaunt for who he is. He goes to visit him and says, I don't need things. And so, you know, they have one scene of them eating apple pie together. And that's really their only scenes together for the rest of the movie until the end, which is a shame too, because again, you have two really charismatic actors, Ed Harris, Max von Sydow are people that command your eyes when they're on screen. And even the lousiest of films, you will pay attention to them, but this movie will not serve their characters, their battle and why he's able to resist Jacob. I agree with you. If we can't get all the characters in Castle Rock into the story, explain one. Explain your protagonist, at least. <laughs> yes. Give me Pangborn and explain to me what he means. My problem with a lot of King's fiction in the 90s and on, and maybe even in the 80s as I reread some of it, is his main characters, all the way back to the stand, I suppose, you could say this about Stu Redmond, they're... Regular guys who wear blue chambray shirts and blue jeans and know to do the right thing because they're good people. They very rarely have stuff to overcome. This was my complaint about Dr. Sleep is that the Andy character there just did good because he's a good person. And I think that that's how King throws one good person in a cesspool and it's up to that good person to try to save everyone around them. It's kind of the case with The Mist, too. There were there was a team of good people in The Mist, but that dynamic holds up through a lot of King fiction, and I do find that Pangborn is an underwritten character. Yeah, we won't be spending a lot of time in describing the rest of the movie, exploring him at all. I guess we can look at his relationship. Like I said, he's introduced here, giving a ring to this diner owner, and they're going to have a, a betrayal. But it would be more interesting to me if this was a town of people that liked each other, or at least professed to like each other, but flashed them a material object and they compromised their values. Instead, it looks like people that already hate each other and probably would kill each other even without the promise of a Hummel figurine. So I don't really <laughs> understand how Satan is tempting them to do anything outside of what they're already thinking. Well, Max von Sydow rolls into town, and from his first scene with Brian, I'm enchanted with this guy. I mean, there's only one character Max von Sydow plays pretty much in his career these days. I mean, he's always the bad guy. Let's... 
not forget movies we've reviewed him in, not to spoil them, but Minority Report, Flash Gordon, Rush Hour 3. He was the voice of Vigo in Ghostbusters 2. That's why I was shocked as hell when he showed up in Star Wars Episode 7 and he wasn't the bad guy. Although they should have made him that, he would have been a much better Snoke. He's great at it. I want to defend Max von Sydow since you think of him as the star of villainous bad Hollywood films. He has a very rich career playing morally conflicted people in Igmar Bergman movies. And that's how I like to think of him. That's where I saw him the first time, was in The Seventh Seal. And for those who listened to our Last House on the Left reviews, we talked about him in The Virgin Spring. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, The Exorcist, too. I mean, the, he's not a villain in that, but he commands. I mean, by God, there's nobody else on screen when he walks on. He just draws your attention. He has star quality. And I think so does Ed Harris. So again, it's really a sad thing that this is not a movie that is going to use either one of them. I mean, I think Max von Sydow sits back and plays Ave Maria and smokes for most (laughs) of this movie. I don't think he really tempts too many people with good monologues. No, and I'll agree with you, Stuart. It's exciting to see Ed Harrison and Max von Sydow that are in this film. It gives you a little bit of hope. And I think Sydow, he's a lot of fun. He's kind of campy at times. Yeah, a lot of times he's just sitting back and smoking. Ed Harris, though, like, he even disappoints me in this film. Like, he, he couldn't even help this turd. No, I didn't know Ed Harris that well when I saw this. I didn't remember him from Glen Gary, Glenn Ross. What I primarily knew this guy from for most of the 90s was Milk Money. So seeing him here, I wasn't disappointed when I saw this in theaters. I didn't know who this guy was. And the theatrical cut does him raw. I mean, he's got nothing to do. He's barely in it. But Cedow, no, he's not tempting enough. He just seems to magically have this thing. Like if I went in and somebody said, oh, look, I've got this autographed Samuel L. Jackson Mace Windu figure. And look, it's autographed to Arnie. My first thought is, it's a forgery. Fake. You just signed it in the back, (laughs) didn't you? Yeah. But no, he has the magical one item that anybody will just fall for and betray what moral compass they have because he's going to ask them to do things, mean things, to people that they're ambivalent about. It's not people they care about or people they hate. It's Eh, you know that person who you've seen at the diner a couple times? Go throw shit on her sheets. Yeah, let's go and break through. I think it's this movie does sort of have several intertwining storylines. It's probably helpful to detassel it and look at each strand individually. We can really probably start with the diner waitress, Amanda Plummer, Honey Bunny from Pulp Fiction, I believe, is going to be caught up in a some kind of rival with a crazy turkey farmer. And it's all related to this Brian kid getting a baseball card. Yeah, Wilma is the most one-dimensional of the one-dimensional characters here. She has dirty mud. She goes into the antique store. She's like, this some kind of carver? And throws down the antique. I mean, she is playing it broad. Yeah, she's a comedy writer and actress. And I presume they went that route because... I mean, even on the page, Arnie, there was nothing to this character. She was just screaming all the time. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot that they could do without fleshing it out a bit more. (laughs) She was kept up by Raider the dog. I believe what, what they established, although they don't live close together, so I don't quite get why. But something about Nettie, who was in the novel, not a waitress, but in fact a seamstress, her dog was the crux of the problem. 
And here, I guess it sort of is because Nettie's bringing an apple pie to Needful Things as a as a welcoming, and she brought the dog along. And I don't know, maybe it's just Cujo PTSD. I just, people people don't like dogs now. I was getting a little bit of Gremlins. Remember how Gremlins Billy had that dog, and the old lady was going to kill the dog because the dog was in the bank. You remember all that? Yeah, they established a whole history with that dog, though. Was there one with Nettie's dog and Wilma? I didn't get it. I took it all from like this: the incident happening in Needful Things. She's just immediately saying, "I want to skin your dog." Yeah, and repeatedly every time she sees this poor woman is like, "And I want to eat your dog, and I want to kill your dog." And so it doesn't require Max von Sydow to create a misperception in that this woman is unhinged and does want to murder this dog but she won't be the one to do it but isn't that the thing about satan satan doesn't create the problem satan just throws the spark that makes the tinderbox go up you're not going to get me to say that this is a seduction i don't feel like anybody here gets seduced by their desire for commercial items or none of it it's really it does feel like king had 50 short stories and put them all in the same book, but this time said, and I'm not going to have any monsters. So it's Tommy knockers without the green lipstick lasers. But okay. So because the kid threw turkey shit on her sheets, this unhinged woman is ready to go nuts, but she doesn't, she doesn't go nuts. It's got to take two more tricks before she goes nuts. It takes so long for anyone to go nuts in this. Yeah, the the, the fact that there's no like personal motives behind their crimes because they're all just attacking random people who are making assumptions like way too long. There could be commentary in that. It, there could be, yes. If this were about capitalism, I might be willing to do something that I don't think is a very big deal because I want something, not realizing the people that that ends up hurting, you know, in industries or whatever whatever like you could create a scenario in which me making a simple act of litter or what have you has a cascading effect that really impacts somebody's life that has to pick that up but i don't really feel like king has thought about morality much at all it feels like he wants to yet again explore his addiction issues and have all of the characters manically clinging to their Hummel figurines, ready to kill for them. Yeah, this movie is all about the devil made me do it. And people say that in real life, and I have huge moral issues with that. Like, so you have no free will. Like, you just some magical being is making you do awful things. And yeah, if this isn't going to be satire about how, we, you know, we're the real devils for whatever reason, capitalism, whatever reasons, just small town, how people are in that kind of environment, whatever reasons you want to give it, at least it would have some purpose. Here, it's, it's based off a silly like thing people get from the bio the devil made you do that bad thing and there's nothing more than that but here it's a combination i mean they have free will obviously pangborn has free will to walk away from this he wasn't offered anything either there was nothing we didn't have a moment where he's like wouldn't you like a new gun that would have been something to do you know like don't you want to be able to protect your new wife no, that is what you do with a story. Like, you have someone tempted by the thing that's tempted everyone else, and they overcome it, and that's why they're a hero. Like, yeah. that never happens. So let's untangle this one. Like like I said, so Brian has to come back and throw apples through Wilma's window as well, and because Nettie makes a lot of apple pies, that means that she must be the one to do it. That's a great scene, though. I love the apple-throwing scene. Are all those windows on the same side of the house? He is thrown from the same spot, and there's a lot of windows. And is he a better pitcher because he has the baseball card? I don't, like... Mickey Mantle wasn't a pitcher, was he? 
I know. I Again, like if you were smarter about this, you would see that he was able to do this job better because of the needful thing that he owned. Well, I mean, being a baseball fan, I went with the kid can throw a apple. I do think Pangborn points it out later is if you're going to kill somebody, why would you throw apples through their windows 30 minutes earlier? You know, poor Brian is guilt ridden for what he does to Wilma's house, the shit and the apples. That's all he does. But why? Like, who wouldn't want to destroy... What kid doesn't want to throw rocks through the window of someone they hate? Yeah, no, breaking those windows looked awesome. (laughs) But they die. And so he feels guilty because he feels he caused it. But he has a guilty scene before Wilma is ever dead. And he's guilt-ridden and doesn't want to do the apple throwing for a reason. Again, it's all... There's no time for character motivation. We'll never truly understand why. And I doubt that if you read the book, you'll have a a more clear-cut reason i did not i'm thinking maybe because i read the book i'm giving that character more because there was a lot more to brian in the book with his younger brother and there was nothing more about why he was impelled to do the bad deeds that he did there was more of him walking around in the town but there was no more deeper character motivation Meanwhile, they, they can't even be enough to have it a three-way triangle. We've got to get bring in this drunk Hugh Priest who's introduced kicking a jukebox stuck on achy breaky heart. The real version. Where how much money did they spend in 1993 to get achy breaky? Well, you said it was a $15 million movie, so... like No, that's how much it made. Oh. <laughs> it probably was a $15 million movie, so I would guess that's within its budget. I was just surprised that they had Achy Breaky back then. Which, listen, I understand for a lot of people, just having Achy Breaky is enough to red arrow this movie right there. And if that's the case with either of you, I'll accept that. No, no, I got way more problems than that. Or maybe you identify with a character that wants to kick the jukebox that won't yeah. stop playing it. <laughs> the point is, he's thrown out in this rainy night and goes wandering by needful things and sees his letterman jacket in the window, which is a total rewrite for the movie. In the book, it was, and I'll never understand this, it was a raccoon tail that he tied to this car antenna. And he really loved a raccoon tail. That's a total 50s thing. Leave it to King to go total 50s. But having those raccoon tails on your car antenna was a thing and a status symbol back then. You're going to sell your soul to the devil for a raccoon tail? It was so dumb. It was so, so stupid. Here, it's it should be the car, you know, right? The car with the raccoon tail. There you go. Just a raccoon yeah. tail. I feel like they get what it should be about here. The idea is that for this man, whether he's having an out-of-body illusion or what have you, this is his chance to reclaim his childhood. He's 50 years old and drunk, but he used to be the cool jock that had the girls in the convertible. We'll see the purple lightning give him that flashback. (laughs) And so by putting on that jacket again, he can be his former glory. But in order to do that, hold tight, he's got to go skin a dog. Really? That does seem a little much even for the town drunk. It really does. And he's not drunk when he's doing it either. Does he already know how to skin a dog? <laughs> like, you gotta learn how to do that. <laughs> There's more than one way to skin a dog, Jacob. <laughs> I thought that was cats only. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's next week, Stuart. Pre-internet, there's no tips on how to get this done. And so, halfway into this movie, we finally get to the climax of this, in which both women are understandably ready to go at each other with whatever sharp objects they can find. But it's pretty silly, right? Well, that's what I'm saying. Is this supposed to be like a serious look at small town America? Or is it a dark comedy? Because this feels, yeah, it's silly. It's funny. I kind of like it with how campy it is. Yeah, I think they're going for 
some dark humor here. Both of them have done comedy. I feel like this is uh, the the 80s movies that did this well were ones about divorce. This is like fighting over material objects when people used to love each other and now they want to kill each other. It's like War of the Roses yeah. is kind of where they want this movie to live. I think of this not as a horror movie. I mean, it's got some magic to it. It's got some murder to it. But this seems to me like a dark comedy, dramedy type movie. Right, but not particularly fun. Like, the comedy is not really landing either. I When they go out the window with cleavers in their neck and knives in their stomach, it doesn't feel like a gut buster, right? Like, it's neither scary, grotesque, or amusing. Just puzzling. And let me just say, this TBS cut takes out so much of the violence and what little gore you have. You don't get the look at the dog. Which you don't I, get the, like, cleaver in the head? Nope, no cleaver in the head, no repeated stabbing. So if that's what you're there for, don't watch the longer cut at all. I mean, it's just, it's implied violence mostly. <laughs> I'm not going to watch the longer cut, I could tell you that. <laughs> and this is where you're talking about with Brian getting his guilt complex. He, I, I think Pangborg knows right away that the, the person that skinned that dog is not Wilma. He has this suspicion that Brian threw the apples. Well, Brian is there, and that is in the regular cut, too. Yeah, he comes up and he wants to talk to the sheriff, but then he chickens out and runs away. When the two bodies are there, when all the cops are at Wilma's house and Nettie's dead and Wilma's dead, Brian goes to talk to the sheriff, then gets scared, runs away, and the sheriff's like, all right, I got to follow up with Brian because Nettie didn't throw all these apples. And if Brian wanted to talk to me, Brian's a baseball fan, probably Brian threw the apples. And that leads us to Brian's suicide scene. They were forced by the studio to change it. In the book, Brian kills himself. Okay, so is that why he never shows back up in the film? I don't remember seeing him. They'll mention that he's still alive, but I, I don't even remember at the end if he shows up there. He does not. Okay. He, he was dead, and the studio's like, that's way too fucking dark. So now we have a couple of scenes where they're like, he's gonna be okay. Yeah, but I feel like going darker might have helped or something. This movie needed more of something. Like, it feels really like they pulled their punch by having this awkward scene of this kid haunted by what he did, and then it comes to nothing. But, you know, I get it. A little kid killing themselves. Certainly around that time, suicide being the hot button issue after Heather's. Uh, Okay, so this is not my biggest problem with the movie. And... Again, with the TBS cut, this is my biggest problem with the TBS cut. I guess because of, what, snowflakes? You can't even show a kid with a gun to his head. They had to zoom in, make the image extra grainy and fuzzy, and crop out half of Billy's head during the suicide scene so you wouldn't see a gun to his head. Yeah. It's kind of a cheat that he doesn't die, but even weirder, the drunk, Hugh, like he goes back to to the Mellow Tiger bar, gets thrown out again, and I guess the jacket's not waterproof, and because it's ruined, uh, he's ready to get a gun from Needful Things and blow away the barkeep. I don't even think the jacket's ruined, really. I mean... Yeah, I didn't take it that way. It's just like they kept pushing him, kept throwing him out, kept having that broken jukebox they wouldn't fix. And he was drunk as hell. You know, I mean, I think there's something to be said about the angry drunk. And he's just mad that his coat's wet, but I didn't think he wrecked the coat. I heard the word ruined, but I didn't know, again, who designs a jacket that can't get wet? Like, that seems like maybe not one to prize in your closet. There's a whole Seinfeld episode about that. They make them. (laughs) Okay. Well, at any rate, so that's that story strand. That's probably where the bulk of the movie lives. 
It's the first kills we get. It sets the tone for all of the betrayals and bickerings and pranks that get played on. Arnie, are you saying that it's better in the book? Yeah, I am. I think Amanda Plummer's portrayal of Nettie, again, Amanda Plummer, man. So I married an axe murderer. This, I always just get a, a weird performance off her where... Fisher King, right? Yeah. Is is she playing someone as, like, mentally disabled? I mean, because she, they say in the movie, she murdered her husband who was abusive to her. Did he cause her some brain damage? I mean, what is up with her? I like the character a lot better as a seamstress in the book. I went with this a lot more. Plus, in my head, all of the things that happened worked a little bit better than they did on this meager budget on the screen. I think like she's one of the better performances, though. I feel like maybe you don't want the character to come off as so strange and you know she's got a lot of anxiety like she was even afraid to go to the store and well yeah that's my problem is it opens up i'm like oh because this is based on a king novel so i'm like is she psychic because she's like that's a that's beware of that store they're covering their windows they don't want you to see what that's a bad omen but then she's like taking him an apple pie i'm like what i i thought like she was going to be the one that, that warning everybody to stay away and no, that's so bizarre. I don't understand anyone's motivations here. I don't like this story at all. And in fact, if they didn't include any of these storylines, I know they have to because it's a big part of the book. But like, <laughs> I get nothing out of all of this. All of this, if it was supposed to be this Rube Goldberg of look at the way people turn on each other, it ends up feeling like kind of like how Mousetrap feels when you play it. When you like <laughs> pull the thing and then it doesn't make the man jump in the tub and then the tub doesn't knock the pole. Out. Like I'm like, oh, this is not rigged right it's not going to go off like the time bomb it's supposed to be yeah because my expectation was we took all this time to set up this rivalry between Nettie and Wilma it's paid off they've killed each other and now we got montage right of everyone double crossing each other and, and breaking out fights and let's get to the climax no now we're going to talk about uh, Buster Keaton and his embezzlement <laughs> schemes and like we're just going to keep going I, I got the gist of the film the devil's making everyone hate each other and fight each other let's move on let's get to the end this was a story and now a movie about a town and so we need to have a lot of townies if we're going to do that there's nothing compelling about this town though that's my problem have a lot of townies if you got something to say there's nothing to be said here yeah i would i would say that you would have to recalibrate every single character in the novel so that they were more harmonious in the way they related to each other i don't mean necessarily they were nice to each other just that their stories played off each other ping pong ricocheted in a way that you really felt like you were watching pinball and not an anthology movie that got put in the Cuisinart because that's how it's coming out now. We, the next major rivalry is we got this deputy Andy from Twin Peaks gave a parking ticket to this city official. And now Danforth Keaton, don't call him Buster, is going to like get revenge on him. There was a lot more of this in the extended cut as well. You got to see the ticket given instead of him just walking in complaining about a ticket. We got to see more back and forth between the deputy and Buster. And so more of the same. You're not selling me that the longer cut really does add dimension. It maybe slows down the pace so that you can absorb some of these storylines. But I'm not seeing different dimensions to these characters. The extended cut is not my preferred cut because its pacing is glacial. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I'll say right now, there's more there. And when watching the theatrical cut, I did have a little bit of, 
you know, it's coming out of nowhere that this guy's burst into the room and is like, you gave me a ticket and they're arguing back and forth. It was more set up. Ed Harris initiated the ticket in the longer cut. I just felt like there was more there there to it. But man, is it slow to get there. Okay. Yeah. And Jacob, you mentioned Twilight Zone. I feel like this Dan story is the Twilight Zone episode. The magical toy that could predict and save his horse racing debts. You say Twilight Zone. I was totally thinking Friday the 13th, the series. Oh, the cursed antiques. Uh Uh-huh. You know what? I think King might have been influenced by that. Twin Peaks was on at this time. We had the cursed antiques. I do think King was trying to take back and say, I'm the guy that knows small town America. And I do feel like the novel Needful Things was sort of a rebuttal on other people taking his shtick. And frankly, I don't know if Friday the 13th, the series did it better, but certainly (laughs) Twin Peaks did it better than this. So I was thinking, this is the only truly magical item other than the arthritis cure, right? Yeah, the necklace Polly will get. Yeah, most of the stuff is just these people are obsessed with it. But here we're told, although I never saw in either cut for sure that this would tell him who the winners of the races were. Yeah, no, I I was like, is that the assumption? Or is he just like thinking back of horse races that he had bet on in the past? It was unclear. Yeah, he's clearly enabled by the magic device in the book, but it isn't going to, he's not going to earn enough money to get out of the financial trouble of embezzling 20 million from the city. What does this really have to do with his fight with a deputy? Because he feels he's above the law and is upset that he got ticketed and then... Nettie is going to, like, plant tickets all over his house. Yeah, I again, the, the shame of the name. If what I'm getting the root of this extreme pain that he goes through is he doesn't want to be compared to the wonderful silent comedian Buster Keaton. Yeah, one of the greatest comedians of all time. Don't want to be compared to that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right. I can see why that would infuriate you and make you want to get a hammer and kill people. And J.T. Walsh is a character actor. We've seen him in stuff. I was trying to think if he ever had, like, a signature movie. I couldn't find it. Yeah, I looked through, and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's always that guy in the background of other movies that I like. (laughs) Yeah, he is, towards the end here, when he's going after his wife, he's kind of doing Nicholson. I'll give him the compliment that he's better than Steven (laughs) Weber doing Nicholson, but not good as Nicholson doing Nicholson. I just feel like, again... (laughs) Here is a story that feels more rooted in irony in Twilight Zone and in getting closer to something that I might enjoy seeing. But the performances really aren't that good. It's neither scary nor funny. You see, and I think that King does better with this one a lot because it does play a little bit more scary as you do see this guy descend into madness and murder when he just started. You know, he's a criminal. He's a robbing from the town coffers, but he's not a murderous psychopath at the start of the book. And to see his descent into madness is one that you'll see again. Like I said, many books of Stephen King's have this character already on the edge pushed to being murderous by extreme circumstances. Uh, You could even say Harold from the stand was like that. I was definitely thinking of Harold. And I think that here they got a comedic actor. They got a director who seems to be leaning towards comedy. I think King made it more suspenseful. I didn't enjoy it on the page. Worth pointing out in here, this is where the two story strands we've talked about intersect. Nettie, before she goes and has her knife fight, in order to pay for the Hummel figure that she prized so much, 
she was required to come in this house and put those tickets all around. This is probably my favorite scene because they score it to in the Hall of the Mountain King, that opera bit. Yeah, prominently featured in the trailer, which gives it a comedic feeling. Yeah, it does. I mean, the thing is, it's not as overused as O Fortuna, but it has the chanting that gives it some weight, but it also just sounds mischievous. Yes. You know, it does come off a little bit more playful, and the fact that it's coming right after the apples are thrown, while she's doing the tickets and everything... Man, I listened to the score endlessly in 1993-94 in my car, and the main theme and the in the Hall of the Mountain King, I ended up just, you know, learning more about Pierre Gint and Grieg's entire opera there, but that is a great piece of music, in it, and it makes the scene really memorable and fun. Did Nettie, because she made this guy go crazy, deserve to have her dog skinned? I just don't see it. If her innocent act, if that had made that guy crazy... We could almost say that karmically speaking, she deserved the punishment she was going to get. But I don't feel like that kind of justice, that kind of comic book EC comic justice really plays out here. I really don't feel like anyone gets what they deserve. You mean like with an ironic ending to their life? Yeah, agreed. Nobody deserves what they get. Nothing's proportional. And I do think perhaps the dog skinning is next to setting bombs, the worst thing that is done in this movie directly. When Gaunt says, go skin a dog, I think that's the harshest thing he says. I mean, throw turkey shit and skin a dog are two vastly different levels of quote unquote prank. And that's a real problem I have with this story then, because like if you look at something like Creep Show and the Father's Day story, yeah, I mean maybe people don't deserve to be killed for treating their father badly, but there's some satisfaction about that man wanting to be celebrated on his birthday and turning his spoiled brat daughter into a birthday cake. I mean I do feel like you want to have those kinds of ironies. You want to see those people get it and feel a part of yourself seduced by the evil thought of it. That we want to see people murdered for not living up to our standard. Not here. Maybe it could have even worked as a religious film. Because one of the rivalries here is Father Meehan wanting to have casino night. And the Baptist Reverend, Don Davies, Major Briggs, is going up behind him and, and putting just say no to the devil bumper stickers over all the advertisements. Yeah, again, this is where they could have had a lot of fun, a lot of humor with the Baptists and Catholics taking jabs at each other, and it kind of falls flat. It was disappointing. Like, again, when when these two had showed up, I'm like, okay, maybe we'll get some laughs here, and it never really pans out. Is there a rivalry between Baptists and Catholics? Yeah, there are evangelicals that believe, again, if you're— those Jack Chick tracks, those little Bible tracks you could sometimes find posted on your car. Someone hands them out when you're trick-or-treating as a kid. They do not like the Catholics. They believe the Catholics are, are the whore of Babylon. Like, so there, there are very extreme born-agains that, yeah, do not like the Catholics. I can speak to it in my own family. When I go down south, none of those people have a kind word to say about Catholics. You might as well be devil worshippers. Even though it's, you know, Christ is supposed to bring us all together. But no, it's a schism. Like Gaunt himself, I am more non-denominational. So I didn't realize it was a thing. But religious people going nuts and being murderous in Stephen King fiction, that I knew all about. Yeah, and again, I just want to see him deep in that. We've seen him be like, have people just be manic and go crazy and kill. Why not have a real person? Why not really try to explain what a devout person would think and do and then see how they might be compromised by the devil and end up slashing someone's tires? 
why not have that skill at this point in your writing career? If you're not going to go with monsters, why not be a better writer is, I guess, what I'm really asking. <laughs> I mean, I do find it funny, though it's very obvious, is this Baptist reverend, he's tempted by a sex sculpture, basically. It looked He looked like he picked one of the very phallic ones. Yeah, which... the wind chimes with the dick on it, yeah. I thought it was the painting, because what he carries out of there with something very large in a bag that I thought was the painting rolled up. I thought he was going to get the painting because that's what it lingers on. But no, there's something wrapped up. It's obviously very phallic. It's it's an easy jab. And then what does the Catholic priest get? Like, a, just is it the Holy Grail? It's some kind of chalice. I believe it's the Holy Grail. It looks like it came right off the set of Indiana Jones. <laughs> I was wondering, a, a big part that pops in late in the novel was a whole pedophile thing. I was wondering if... If they were going there in the longer cut, if that got no, cut. No, 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 didn't, no, no, They didn't go anywhere near they that. They were not going to go anywhere near that. If they're not showing a kid hold a gun to his head, I don't think they're going to have that subplot. Well, I mean, maybe if they remade this, I think they would be more inclined. But at any rate, I, I will give the, this rivalry one funny scene. I did enjoy the fact that after Nettie and Wilma killed each other, they're both called to the scene and are both trying to give a blessing because yes. each woman <laughs> is part of a different denomination. That was just like a fun little moment. So the kind of sly, clever, understated thing I wished I was seeing more of in these scenes. It's truly laugh out loud funny. And here's the thing is I watched the longer cut before the shorter cut because I'd never seen the longer cut before this week. And when I watched the longer cut, a lot of these moments got lost because there's just so much in the shorter cut. I think a lot of these scenes hit harder because you have less time with each of these characters. And so when something cool like this happens, something ironic and funny, it just hits a little bit harder. So, yeah, I liked that a lot in this two hour cut. But I suppose we should talk about the love story. The final rivalry that they focus on is Polly and Pangborn. That these characters that got engaged in the first scene are now going to be tempted to betray one another because Polly has arthritic hands. Yeah, that was something in the book that always struck me as odd. I don't know. I always associated arthritis with being really elderly. Oh, no. And so when I was reading that the sheriff had this fiance who had bad arthritis, when I was 17, I had trouble reconciling that. Now, as an adult, I'm like, OK, I have friends with arthritis my age, so I can go with the bad arthritic hands. But is it just her hands or is Gaunt making it like spread throughout her body? Because it looks like her whole entire body's in pain and she could barely move it. In the book, she was, again, she ran a sewing shop. So they're, they're trying to say that she was using her hands all the time. I guess waitresses use their hands as well. I usually think of waitresses having feet problems, you know, like standing all the time in those shoes. Yeah. But hey, whatever. I get it. Like, you're, it's manual labor. It's, it's grunt work and it's painful and it's hard on her body. I also thought the character was older in the novel. And, like, they've de-aged it and turned it into Bonnie Bedelia as as senior citizen as they want to go. Bruce Willis's wife in Die Hard is here as, yeah, this waitress that, again, is she being fooled into thinking her pain is worse than it is? You mentioned that she's addicted to opioids. Is she? I don't know what's going on here. It comes in so late. They play it very lightly. Yeah, it's just a prescription bottle. But they talk about the, what? They don't say Percocet. They call it Percodan or something, something generic. But they're talking about opioids, and she's, like, telling Gaunt, 
Please, can you can you give me my pills? I need my pills. Yeah, they're saying she. Well, she hasn't had her pills. Like the pain comes on. I, I don't take that as an addict. In the extended cut, there's a huge fight between her and Alan, where Alan finds an empty bottle of Percodan and accuses her of taking it. And she goes, "I don't know where that bottle came from because this was after she got the necklace." Okay. And so he's got a big problem with her possibly being an addict. Okay, so they they actually kind of frame her. He's worried that she has a substance abuse issue. That she's hiding from him and she's worried that he's helping buster keaton embezzle the money because she walked by a window once and because she went to his houseboat and saw a bunch of money in envelopes and again i think that pangborn gets it right he's like if i'm embezzling money would i just leave it in envelopes all over my desk at my house if you're engaged and love one another, you have a conversation. The fact that she just like walks out and leaves the ring and calls him and says, how could you feels like, well, your marriage isn't going to work anyway. See if he's going to get away with it first. Like then you got a bunch of extra money. See if it pays off. <laughs> you're saying go with, go with the corruptor corruption. That's funny. I wasn't saying that by the way, I was just saying, maybe you ask him some questions before you jump to the conclusions. It just feels like the devil is not doing a very good job of making good people think bad thoughts. It seems like these pranks are all very obvious, and it's worse in the movie because they're doing these pranks so quickly, and we're not in the characters' heads. But when you're outside the character watching a screen, you are like, yeah, none of this makes sense, and you're a fool for falling for it. The only person who I can side with is Nettie, because if somebody skittled my dog and I had an inkling of who they were, I'd grab the cleaver and go after them too. Yeah, I agree. She's one of the most relatable and one of the best performances in this very silly movie. Did Max von Sydow just want to have a love scene at this point? Like, what? This? Where did this come from? <laughs> that all of a sudden, that like he's going to be like nibbling on her ear, and she's going to have like that's the way she's going to pay for having this necklace that supposedly takes her pain away. That was an odd one, and I watched the extended cut, and I'm like, yeah, they slept together. She cheats on Alan, and I'm wondering if oh, they totally. cut that in the, if they maybe infer different things in the theatrical cut. I'm like, nope, she still cheats on Alan, and they never have that discussion. At the end, she's like, can I have my ring back? Never, oh, I had Satan's dick in me. <laughs> well, I will probably leave that out. I'll be honest. Maybe maybe that's not the best thing. She may be having Rosemary's baby. Things to do in a relationship. But yeah, if you really have done Max von Sydow, that's like, maybe let that one go. Don't tell <laughs> nobody. <laughs> Meanwhile, like the sheriff is like breaking into needful things. It's abandoned now, but he finds all these newspapers. <laughs> so stupid. Yeah, the devil just keeps like headlines from all the kills and towns he destroys. It's his memory book. He's a scrapbooker. You're telling me Gaunt sold somebody the air in the Hindenburg and gave Hitler like the idea for Mein Kampf and sold the bullet to Lee Harvey Oswald? I think Gaunt like had something on Hitler's art teacher and had him kicked out of art school and, and thus creating Hitler. Yeah, that's I mean, this is come on. You're going to do that all with <laughs> antiques? Jesus Christ. At some point, the antiques were new things. Right. I just, <laughs> Pearl Harbor. I'd love to know what he sold to the Japanese to pull that one off. I mean, this is just, it's embarrassingly bad. 
here's your ancestor's sword. Now you must go bomb a U.S. base. Mm-mm. Yeah, because again, it reframes the story. It's not just about like small town America. What destroys these little towns? I mean, if this film aspired to have some kind of exploratory message or, or explore something, that it would do that. But now it's like, no, just everything evil. Like he just he does it all. Like Pearl Harbor, big and small, he'll hit your town or your city. But it is the devil. I mean, it's trying to say everything evil now yeah we already know that there's a whole book about how he's evil like that's very popular (laughs) a lot of people have read it unfortunately he's a minor character in that i you know if he if he he was a larger (laughs) player i might actually finish that book instead of just wait for the movies but you know these days we'd probably want to be more sensitive right and not just portray oh the japanese were possessed by satan I, again, they don't go. There. They should never go there. You're right. This is about small town values and betrayals, and it's really got in over its skis about what it's about and what the influence is and all of it. Arnie, what are we missing? You know, we're pretty much right here at the climax. Were there any other storylines from the book? You know, there was a whole thing about like Brian's mother fighting with her best friend over Elvis memorabilia. Did they do that? They did. Brian's mother, you do see her in the theatrical cut, one scene in the bar and then a scene at the end and she's wearing these crazy ass sunglasses. She's the one that winds up holding a chainsaw, right? She breaks into a hardware store. Oh, that's Brian's mom? Yeah. Uh Okay. Well, there's scenes of Brian with his mother at the start of the movie, and then she gets an Elvis bust, and she has this Elvis obsession in the book. There were two people in the book I just couldn't go with, and one was the Elvis obsession, and the other was the raccoon tail on the car. Those were the two things. I was just like, what? Where, find the, even in 1991, I thought the people who were like, the king is still alive, to just be an utter caricature and for King to include that in the book was very disappointing to me. I felt like his characters should be better than that. Is Batboy going to show up? I mean, really, it's all weekly world news type shit. So here, though, she does have a bust of Elvis that we see her like masturbating next to and kissing and wearing the sunglasses of. In the extended cut? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that was kind of the thing was like, yeah, these women were basically fighting about who was going to be the bride of Elvis because he would come to them in different, like one in sunglasses and one in some other photograph, I believe. And it seemed like something you might want to update, like maybe not make it Elvis, but they actually had someone like with the pompadour and, you know, holo, holo. Yeah, no, they didn't do that here. They just had, like, a Boz Relief bust, you know, the white busts. Okay. And she bought it with, I guess it's supposed to be Elvis's sunglasses. So when you do see her in the theatrical cut, she's wearing Elvis's sunglasses all around. Uh, Yeah, those stupid sunglasses. Okay, that does explain it. Okay. So, I mean, and not explain it at the same time. Anything else we missed? We see more of them in scenes like at the sheriff's station or at the diner or at the bar. But I don't feel, other than the Elvis thing and really cutting down on the Buster deputy thing, I don't feel like entire characters have been excised. I think the only one to be entirely on the cutting room floor may be the secretary from the police station who was hitting on Adam. All right. Well, I guess then we're at the climax. If there's nothing else to say about these people, everyone's mad and Alan needs to take control because... Buster Keaton has planted a bomb at the Catholic Church, 
and the stained glasses and shatters. I, I got to ask that. Yeah, that bomb goes off and then the Catholic priest comes out and he's like damning the reverend, the Baptist reverend to hell. And then lightning strikes a church. Like, was that God like trying to stop him? Like, how do you cause lightning? In, oh, yeah. In the extended cut. Gaunt is giving a lot of shit to Buster as Buster is digging that hole to plant the bomb. And at one point, for reasons I never understood, Gaunt points up at the steeple and says, I've always hated those. And so you're supposed to think that's Gaunt getting in on the action. He hates steeples and he wanted it blown up. Oh, I thought it was God trying to strike him down with lightning or something. Well, I mean, every time someone got one of their needful things, they got a little static cling shock. So I think lightning is associated with Leland Gaunt. So he finally had built up enough static electricity <laughs> to blow up a steeple. <laughs> anyway, here poor Ed Harris does really try. He gets really, really mad. He's really going to like do some acting here as he's shouting and trying to make people feel bad. Yeah, he's really going to yell no and fire that gun in the air. Gaunt is there. Have you noticed the one really trite thing? All right, there's a lot of trite things. Mm. Have you noticed the really trite thing they did where when Gaunt is evil, they gave him dirty long fingernails and ugly teeth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. We have insert shots of him writing things down in the ledger and smoking and, uh, again, just to better associate him with the Lucifer that we think of, the classic idea yeah speaking of that ledger pangborn one of the reasons he suspects gaunt is because he says gaunt never came from akron but in that ledger we see a lot of names from akron before he turns the page so i'm like i think he was in akron i think pangborn's a bad cop (laughs) oh i never doubted that i believe akron has been destroyed by the devil right but (laughs) but pangborn like did a checkup and said he's never been in akron but yeah here you know leland is like do it kill them all Let God sort them out, which is, of course, the key to not do it. But yes, he fires the gun in the air. Yeah, so this was really supposed to be a moment of temptation. Like, we were supposed to be on the edge of our seats. Is Pangborn just going to start shooting people randomly? I never was on the edge of my seat, nope. even when I'm like reading the book, when I'm watching the movie in theaters, I'm like, yeah, this isn't going to go that way. Yeah, but it is interesting, you know, in 2021, we've seen some people destroy <laughs> a little bit of destruction going on here. It does feel like a humbling moment that everyone is waking up from the hangover of how they've been behaving. Do you think if one of those cops at the Capitol building had shot six times in the air and then said, stop! Look at what you're doing to yourselves. <laughs> they all would have just been like, oh, let's go home. No, I, I think I think they did do that and, and, and did not get that response. But yeah, I, I did feel like were people going to pipe up and say, yeah, I posted about Pizzagate. Yeah, I printed Stop the Steel shirts. Like, I do feel like this reckoning that's happening here has a very contemporary feel. Like, this should be working for audiences now. The fact that this movie is nearly 30 years old does not mean that it wouldn't necessarily have something to say about our times right now had it been calibrated correctly. And I think that's what's so frustrating for me is as I'm watching this, I'm like, oh, I don't know if you guys heard, we live in divisive times today. So I'm like, what what is this? This could always speak to that. Like, how does it start in a small town? You get these divisions. And then this film has nothing to say. Like, even if it got our times wrong, if it had something to say, I would have enjoyed it. And and, But no, it's got nothing to tell us about divisive times or, or just not getting along with other people. Yeah, the lunatic character comes out with a bomb strapped to him. And blows up needful things. And that is the end of the film. 
Which is dumb because it's a mystical store that the devil runs. Like, you can't just blow it up. Like, we know that's not going to save the day. This ending is totally different in the book, though. Because in the book, Gaunt has had monsters around. There were spiders and there were lizard things and things that this movie probably just couldn't afford to do. So it went very literal by having Buster run around with a suicide bomber vest. In the book... Pangborn is unwittingly summoning these animals to fight against Gaunt. It's interesting. Yeah, I didn't really buy that in the book, and I don't mind that they've taken the shorthand here and just said we blew up the store, but it doesn't feel too climactic. I mean, I don't feel like that was for this dumb character to do. I wanted Ed Harris to do something. The other thing I liked is that in the book, Gaunt was specifically collecting souls. So as these people died after doing his bidding and making deals with him, making literal deals with the devil, he would take their souls. Well, he kept them in a suitcase, so uh, Alan is able to release their souls. So at least these people aren't damned to hell for what Gaunt made them do. And he'll be back, sequel in 2053, apparently, in Jakarta. That should be weird. (laughs) He he did say that he and Pangborn's grandson will make headlines, making me wonder if you're right, Jacob, did Gaunt knock up Polly? And so they're going to like rock out together, Damien and Gaunt (laughs) in Jakarta. Mm -hmm. But did you rock out to this movie? Jacob Stewart, was this movie one of your needful things? Jacob. You know, it's weird because this movie does feature the devil, but there is no devil in the details of this film. Like, there's barely any details. That's the problem. There can't be a devil in it. There are so many needful things, and I'm not talking about a letterman jacket or a a figurine. There, Motivations, plot, a protagonist. Like, just because you have a main character, it's weird how little he does, how nothing, he doesn't learn a lesson. I don't know why he's not tempted by that. Like, all these things that matter, like character work, those things are missing. And I just... Again, if you want to tell this story about a hundred characters and how they're all intertwined, yeah, make it a TV series. This should have been a tight, you know, teach me why we are so divisive in America, why there's urban versus rural, blue versus red, why that goes on and do it in a microcosm because it's not new. It's been going on since the, the, the beginning of our country. Like, we didn't all agree to be on the revolutionary side. There's people that wanted to stay with, like, so this is an old story. You should be able to either tell something darkly comedic that, that just gets to the point and, and with, with its satire, or, yeah, put this on TV where you could really explore all these different little relationships and people that care about that kid. Get that long-form storytelling, but this package, and it doesn't sound like that three hours, that extra hour helped with the German cut, but one of the things this does not have is a recommend from me. But here's the thing. For King, uh, this is probably like middle, middle tier. Like, it's not awful. For me, it was just so frustrating because I saw that this could have been a good story and it, it totally failed at providing that. So I like the thousand foot view of the plot, but when I got into those details, oof, it, it's bad. Not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, I mean, listen to Gaunt. I feel like he's speaking for King when he's like, this is not my best work, not by a long shot. But that did not mean that Needful Things couldn't have worked as a movie. Like That doesn't give this thing a pass that I didn't like the book a lot. We've seen many times that King is elevated when the right director takes the material, like Shining, Carrie, Stand By Me, Dead Zone, even Running Man. Better films than books. 
it can be done. You could take Needful Things and all of its imperfections and hone it down and find the good movie in it. Because I do think that there are potentials for talking about small town America that are interesting, appealing, something I would want to see. But yeah, this ends up feeling like one of those things on the back shelf covered in cobwebs in your grandma's house. Like nobody knows why it's there. (laughs) Nobody knows what its function was. And it hasn't worked the whole time that you've been around it. What's the point? Like if you don't have anything to say about why small town people betray one another, then it just becomes this Tommy knockers without the aliens and the lipstick. It's just you've taken... An appealing idea. I love the idea of of unmasking small-town America, but done nothing with it. And what we're left with is an overstuffed, undercooked apple pie that I don't recommend eating. But I agree with you, Jacob. By describing it in this way, perhaps I sound harsh, but keep in mind, we're now nearly 70 films into this. Harsh is simply middle middle (laughs) of the experience. I would put it on the same shelf as Thinner. The first, sometimes they come back, and those both, actually both versions of Children of the Corn. You're probably right. Other than the original Children of the Corn, I agree with you that those other movies, including this one, they're so forgettable. They're like a dream when you wake up in the morning and you have some vague idea of what you dreamt about but you can't remember the specifics. I think that's Mm. the case with a lot of Stephen King movies from the early 90s, which means it wasn't a nightmare where you woke up sweating and you knew exactly what was haunting you. That would be Graveyard Shift for one. And any mangler, yeah. any mangler would do. <laughs> Trucks. <laughs> Lawnmower Man 2. Yeah. But then it's certainly not good enough either. Here, I gotta say, I was on the line. I think I have some nostalgia for this film for one, but for all of the movie's narrative failings, I feel like it stumbles along, right? I mean, it's not giving me deep characterization. Mm -mm. It's moving from point A to point B to point C in a not horribly illogical manner. I do think that when Pangborn points out the movie's biggest flaw, these are horrible tricks that you should see right through, that I am agreeing with him, but it's going along, and Max von Sydow is so good in every scene, and the score is so good. I mean, enrapturous score. He was even better in The Omen, Arnie. Like, let's not oversell it. It's a bunch of demonic chanting to orchestral, you know, mood. Omen did the chanting better. This does the composition better. Yes, I'm going to say something about this score is better than the Omen score. It's a tremendous score. I can't say enough about it. But are those two great things enough to slip this over the line of a of a mediocre to subpar movie into weak recommend territory? Not quite. It's a weak not recommend. It's on the borderline because, man, I wish that score and Von Sydow had been in a better movie. The thing is, I would love it if they would give that director... He gave the most monotonous commentary I've heard in a while, but if they'd give him his chance to make his director's cut, I find that the theatrical cut is too compressed and there are leaps of logic made. I find that the three-hour Turner cut 
is way too long and needs to be trimmed down. Put the car chase back in, put back in the opioid addiction, put back in a couple of other things, and you could have a weak recommend here, but both versions of this movie, weak not. I mean, to I'll also quote Gaunt, I'd hardly call it a rousing success, but what the hell, King will be back. Yeah, and so will we next week with Sleepwalkers, another Stephen King I've never seen before, but I don't have to read a book. Oh my God, when we started talking about doing the Stephen King retrospective series, there were certain jewels that I couldn't wait to talk about. Okay. And I mean, The Shining, Carrie, Lawnmower Man, Sleepwalkers. Mm. Now these are jewels for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Not all are, are real jewels. Yeah, what, what shining are you comparing this to, Kubrick or Kissing Kissing? Yeah, maybe both. <laughs> That's true. I don't know where we're going with this. I, I've never even heard of this one. Let me put it this way. It's from the director of that Shining TV movie remake. Oh, oh okay, okay. I know where we're going then. <laughs> Mick Garris. Back. Back for now playing. But this was his first King collaboration. This is what started their beautiful friendship. This is what got him the shining. <laughs> yeah. And and the stand, it's worth pointing out. So yeah, let's find out. I, I'm in I'm intrigued. I've known about this movie forever. You've given me some indications that it's really crazy. Let's do it next week. And in the meantime, if you want a better satanic story, I did find it very funny that this movie had so many parallels to the omen, including the score and the devil. Although I think Damien had much bigger plots than Leland. Mm -hmm. But we are finishing up our Omen retrospective series this Friday. That's right. There was a remake in 2006, 666, June 6th that was released. I was there to see it. At the 6 o'clock showing? Uh, no, I had uh, traffic, you know, in LA. You can never get there <laughs> at 6. But uh, yeah, we're going to cover the finale and talk about the whole franchise. I hope you can join us for that. I've had a whole lot of fun going through the satanic panic devil baby all the way from the original Rosemary's Baby to the 2006 Omen. Eight films. It concludes this Friday. Yeah, this is the end of our fall winter donation drive, too. So if you've kind of been waiting so you can get all the shows in one bundle, this Friday's the day. And this donation drive, maybe it's because 2020 felt like it was 10 years in one, but it seems like an eternity ago that we reviewed Last House on the Left mm. and The Hills Have Eyes. Mm -hmm. But those are the silver level shows for $10. Gold level includes all the Omen reviews and the three Rosemary Baby movies. Yes, there mm -hmm. are three. Don't forget about that TV movie. Which TV movie? There are two. Oh, you know the one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look what happened to our franchise. <laughs> so that is 14 bonus shows for a donation of $25 or more. The Cloverfield trilogy is our platinum level for $35 or more. Then if you want to go even more, $45 or more, you get 24 total podcasts. All I've mentioned, plus three Deep Blue Sea reviews and four Jaws reviews. One more movie, and there's as many Deep Blue Seas as Jaws. <laughs> mm. And then the highest level, Sweets for the Sweet Level, gets you 28 bonus podcasts. It brings in the Candyman series, because Candyman 4 was supposed to come out this spring. <laughs> <laughs> Along with every other movie that's not coming out. 
And so whenever Candyman 4 comes out, if you'd pledge at the sweet for the sweet level, you will get the new Candyman review. But right now, you'll get to hear the original three. The donation drive ends next Friday. So hopefully you can donate, support our show. Every penny goes into making this show the best it can be. And then we say thank you with all these bonus shows. And if you can't pledge, I know things are tight. It's still 2020's hangover plus pre-tax season. You could help us out by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes, you know, or whatever podcast player you lit you use but itunes is currently the number one player in podcasts so if you go to itunes click five stars and leave a little written blurb saying what you enjoy about the show it does help other people find our show and listen so we'd love it if you could do both but a pledge to get the extra bonus shows or a review to help us out on itunes both would be greatly appreciated and we will not ask you to do any dirty pranks after. <laughs> I think you've asked me to do things even worse than what is being asked of these characters in this movie. But I keep doing them because, yes, we have people out there that enjoy what we're doing and join us on the Friday shows and give us great feedback and a lot of support. So thank you. Indeed. So we will be back on Tuesday with Sleepwalkers. And now we've got to go. We've got to go to hell. No more killing! That in Castle Rock! Not me! Not you! Not anybody! This shit stops now! Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Three. We're having fun now. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. You've been having a devil of a time with me lately, haven't you? And also, come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. Listen to me! All of you! In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. Oh, sure. A couple of rather lovely explosions. I would hardly call it a rousing success. But what the hell? I'll be back. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and Robocop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Come see me when you're done. Support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating. I have it coming, you know that. Yeah, yeah, I know. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. What price did you have to pay for your needful thing? You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. I won't disappoint you. I promise. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Look at you. Puppets. All of you. And he is pulling the strings. 
Associate produced by Jason. We're all decent people! We are! Now Playing is edited by Arnie. The wicked shall be turned into hell. Now Playing, credit narration by Brock. Your master's voice. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Well, you think about it, so will I. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. But there are those times when you simply must hurt the ones you love. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. And I am sick and tired of this goddamn persecution. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Listen up, you macro snapper. We have tried to reason with you, but it's been no use. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. The yeah. dealing isn't done, you see, until Mr. Gaunt says the dealing is done. Take away all of Polly's pain, but the price, but the price Polly must pay. Oh my God! I'm in a fucking Peter Piper pick a pack. <laughs> the price Polly must pay. The price Polly must pay is to kiss... I'm not popping my peas, right? No. I have a brand new mic filter tonight, and I had no idea how much I'd need it. <laughs> nope, I haven't heard any pops. <laughs>